When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So have you ever noticed whenever you try really hard at something, you end up not being able to achieve the thing you're trying to do? So for example, you can't sleep at night, you try really hard to fall asleep, and it just makes falling asleep harder to do. Or you're going to a party, you want to make small talk, feel comfortable, relaxed doing it. So you try really hard, and it just makes you uptight and nervous, and it makes you feel... uh, the conversation doesn't flow the way you want it. Well, what's interesting is Chinese philosophers thousands of years ago understood this paradox. Whenever you try to do something, it makes the thing you're trying to do harder to achieve. So Confucianism, Taoism, they all understood this. Well, my guest today has written a book exploring these different Chinese philosophies, the insights they have about trying not to try, combining it with insights we've gotten from neuroscience and cognitive psychology on how we can have a more spontaneous life and how we can actually achieve this, trying not to try. So we have a more spontaneous, relaxed life and things uh, go the way we want. Uh, His name is Edward Slingerland. He's the author of the book, Trying Not to Try, The Art and Science of Spontaneity. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss some Chinese philosophy. And this is great because I've I've never really been uh, a student of Chinese philosophy. This book does a great summary of the early Chinese philosophers. Uh, So we're going to discuss that, their insights on how to live a more spontaneous life, and what neuroscience and cognitive science can teach us about trying not to try. Really great podcast. You're going to get a lot out of this. Without further ado, Edward Slingerland. Edward Slingerland, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So your book is Trying Not to Try. And it's about the art and science of spontaneity. And you approach this by looking at what ancient Chinese philosophers, how they approach spontaneity. So there's two big concepts that you talk about in this book that is going to connect our conversation. So the first is wei, And I guess this was the word that Chinese philosophers uh, use to describe the spontaneity you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly you mean by spontaneous and what the, these philosophers meant by wei and spontaneity? Yeah. So the uwe literally means no doing or non-doing. It's sometimes translated as inaction, but I think really the best translation for it is something like effortless action. So it's a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent. You have a feeling that you're not exerting effort or even really doing anything, and yet everything works out perfectly. 
So it's a bit like being in, in the zone as an athlete. So you have these stories in the early Chinese texts of a skillful butcher who cuts up this enormous ox and he just kind of moves his knife through it and it falls apart. And the Lord who's watching him is amazed because it seems like magic that he could do this so skillfully. Or you have these people who are in social situations. So you have the Confucius moving through social situations or political diplomatic situations with this effortless ease. And he doesn't seem to be trying. He doesn't seem to be really working at it. And yet everything works out. And uh, so why why were they – well, here's another first question. Like how does it connect to this other concept of – is it dough? D-E? Yeah. Duh. It's duh. actually for that duh, like no duh, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, in modern Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, so the, if you're in a state of wu-wei, you get this power called duh, which maybe you translate as charis- charisma, charismatic power. So it is uh, something that if you're a Confucian, attracts people to you and makes them want to follow you. So the ideal Confucian ruler is in a state of wu-wei. And then everything just falls into order around him. He doesn't have to command people to follow him. Everyone just wants to follow him. If you're a Taoist, it's what, if you're a Laozian Taoist, it does the same thing. It kind of brings the world into order, but no one knows that you're doing it. You're kind of this dark figure that no one knows about, and yet suddenly everyone feels natural and starts acting naturally. And if you're a Duangzian, this other Taoist thinker, it seems to be a, a kind of power that relaxes people around you. So they feel comfortable around you. It helps. It's almost like a kind of spiritual therapy you have in other people when you can emanate this power of duh. So it's a power that you get when you're in a state of wu-wei. Interesting. And it, what I found was curious is that all these different philosophers who were talking about how to achieve wu-wei, they all sort of came, came to rise during the same time period, which is, I guess, the, the warring states period. Mm-hmm. Is, do historians have any idea why that is? Well, the warring, a lot of things happen in the Warring States period. So this was really when Chinese philosophy starts. So it's the beginning of explicit philosophizing in China. And it's probably because it was a period of, first of all, expanding population and expanding literacy. So you have a lot more people who are actually able to write thoughts down. But I think primarily it was a period of chaos. So it was a period where China was divided into these various states who were all fighting viciously with one another to try to obtain supremacy. So eventually, you know, one of them succeeded in swallowing up all the others. And that, that became the Qin dynasty, the first unifier of China. But I think what was interesting is you have all these different states. They, they all have courts. So the rulers of these various states have essentially think tanks. So they have these academies where they invite thinkers to come and give them advice about how to be successful. And it's it's not an academic issue because they're in danger of being wiped out. So it was really a time of creativity. You get a lot of schools where all the major indigenous schools of thought in China arise. And they're not just focused on Wei. There are actually a lot of thinkers who are opposed to Wei and think you need to use rationality or cognitive control to properly order a state. But it's it's. I think all of this is happening in this time period because it's it really is when uh, the the intellectual foundations of Chinese thought get laid. Interesting. And I, what I thought was interesting about the, some of the differences between, say, Western thought. So in West Western philosophy, the whole uh, top down rational approach won out. Um, mm-hmm. But in in Uwe, it seemed it was relying more on what you call hot cognition, right? That's mm-hmm. just like not. I don't even have to think of thinking about what you're doing, and things will just work out. But also the emphasis on community. 
So mm-hmm. in, I think in Western philosophy, uh, it's very individualistic. Yeah. Um, and but in Chinese or the Uwe concept, community seem to play a, a big role in it. Can you describe the role community play in Uwe? Yeah. So uh, first of all, you know, Uwe does involve some cold cognition. So there's uh, cognitive scientists talk about two systems sometimes. So we've got the hot system, which is tacit. It's uh, mostly unconscious. It's very fast. It's frugal. It does most of what we we do during the day. Uh, we also have this ability to switch into cold cognition. So this is relatively slow, conscious, rational, calculating. There are two different modes in which we can engage in cognition. And what you see is a tendency in and Western, you know, you can make these generalizations about the West and the East that are almost always inaccurate. But, um, you know, plausibly you could say the dominant models of ethics in the West in the past few hundred years have focused on cold, what I'd call cold models. So ethics is about either following rules, so following maxims, or calculating utility. So if you're a utilitarian, calculating what the best payoff is and then making yourself do it. And they're both cognitive control models. So you, you, what you want to do, nat- what your hot system wants to do is not what you should do. And so what you have to do as an ethicist or as an ethical person is engage in cold cognition, figure out what the right thing to do is, and then force yourself to do it, force your hot cognition to do it. And the, the, this Chinese idea of Wu Wei they also are, most of them, not necessarily the Taoists, but certainly the Confucians are suspicious of the kind of hot cognition we're born with. They do think you have to cultivate yourself and use cold cognition. But the difference is they think you're going to reshape your hot cognition into the right form. And so you're basically, one way to look at it is you're downloading insights you get through cold cognition onto your hot systems. And that makes a much more reliable and faster and able to respond to the world in an effective way. And it also allows you to integrate yourself in your community. So the, the Confucian models are certainly are very communal. What's involved in cultivating the right dispositions is learning how to fulfill your social roles properly, learning how to be a, a obedient child, learning how to be a caring parent, learning how to be a loyal minister. And a large part of the training that's happening is training you to fulfill these social roles properly. But you do see analogs of this in the West. So in Aristotle's vision of how to train people is very much um, training you to be a good Athenian citizen, take your place in Athenian society. So there are there are analogs in the West. Interesting. So I mean, here's something: is the uh, this concept of Uwe is it similar to what? Uh, I'm gonna get this name right. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. Uh, is his concept of flow? Is it very similar to that? There are a lot of similarities. So uh, I read Flow in grad school. I actually went to grad school with Chicksamihai's son, Mark, who's, who's a colleague of mine. He teaches at Berkeley now, uh, does the same kind of stuff I do. So it's there are a lot of uh, parallels. So phenomenologically, so in terms of the way it feels on the inside, it's very similar. So you, have a, you lose a sense of time. You lose a sense of yourself as an agent. Uh, the, the difference is really how... Csikszentmihalyi characterizes what distinguishes flow from other types of states. So he's very eager, and he's right about this, to distinguish flow from states where you lose a sense of time and you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, but you emerge feeling uh, weakened and dirty and kind of mad at yourself. So like sitting in front of a stupid TV show or playing a dumb video game. Uh, it has some of the features of flow, but you don't feel good. You don't feel energized when you come out of it. So he says, well, what's different about flow states then? 
And what he decides is different is that they involve complexity and challenge. So you get into flow when your abilities are perfectly calibrated to the situation. So if it's too easy, you get bored. If it's too hard, you get frustrated. He thinks in flow, you're, he sometimes talks about a flow channel where you're kind of, you're, the challenges are perfectly calibrated to your skill. And what that also means is as your, your skill is going to get better, so you have to keep ramping up the challenges. So if you're you know, a rock climber, you've got to always be trying a harder face to climb or you're going to get bored. So, and, and I think this is an accurate description of certain aspects of what we, certain instances of what we want to call flow or way. So certainly high performance sports, uh, rock climbing, uh, probably also a lot of things, maybe some things in the social world. So business challenges, kind of, you know, striking a good deal or winning a court case. But the interesting thing is that Csikszentmihalyi, when I originally read that book, there are a couple examples he gave that just didn't seem to fit. So particularly the one that stood out was this woman who lives in the Italian Alps, and she describes getting into flow every day when she gets up and goes to milk the cows, and then she gathers wool, and then she weeds her garden. And this is the same stuff she's been doing her whole life. It's what her ancestors have done. There's nothing particularly complex or challenging about it. She knows how to do all this stuff. And even Csikszentmihalyi's own survey data, so he and his colleagues have, have since gone on to collect data from people about when they get into flow states. And it seems to be for most people in, in actually situations of low complexity and low challenge. So walking down a path, favorite path that you've walked down a hundred times, or hanging out with family and having a nice meal or playing with kids. So it doesn't it, the complexity challenge thing doesn't really seem to capture those experiences. And so this is where I think Wu Wei is more helpful because for the early Chinese, the distinguishing feature of Wu Wei is that you're embedded, <clears throat> you're involved in something bigger than yourself. So you're absorbed in something that's both bigger than you, so it's outside of your narrow little ego, and it also is something that you value, that you think is a good thing. And so people get into Uwe when they're walking in a beautiful landscape because they, they are absorbed by nature. This woman, Csikszentmihalyi, interviewed in the Italian Alps, the way she described it is, you know, I feel at one with nature. I feel connected to my ancestral traditions, and that's what gets me into this state. So I think actually the way in which the early Chinese characterize Uwe is a broader and more accurate description of how people get into these states. Yeah. And I love it. Like, I think everyone has been in those, those states before. And I think we all want to try to force us into that state, right? Cause we enjoy it. And yeah. that's what you talk about the different, different Chinese philosophers. There's four of them you highlighted and they had different approaches on how you can achieve Uwe. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Confucius, uh, for example, and uh, so the name of the book is Try Not to Try. And I guess you, the best way to describe Confucius's approach is you try really hard in the beginning so you don't have to try later on. Is that right? Yeah, you basically, you, you, he thinks you need to try very hard to obtain Uwe. So we're nowhere near the state of Uwe in our natural state. But he thinks that if you train intensively over a lifetime, and it takes a long time. It's going to take your whole life. But if you train in rituals, if you study the classics and memorize the classics, so that one of the contributions I think I've made to the study of Wu Wei is it's, it always used to be associated with Taoism because the Taoists talk about Wu Wei all the time. People don't think of typically the Confucians as having Wu Wei as a, as a goal, but they do. 
So it's just it's at the end of a long process of self-cultivation. So uh, Confucius himself describes, he's got this one passage I call a spiritual autobiography. He says, at age 15, I set my heart on learning. At 30, I took my place with ritual. And he describes going through these different stages until finally at age 70, he says, I could follow my heart's desires and never transgress the bounds. So he's gotten to a point where he can do whatever he wants, whatever spontaneous thought comes into his head, and yet he's ritually perfect. So he's complete. He's trained himself so he can finally be in a state of wu-wei. And yeah. that's what his goal is, is to get other people to undertake this training. You, you talked about ritual and the importance of ritual in, in Confucianism and and how, uh, what does is, what is the what does cognitive scientists have discovered about ritual and how it can actually help us put in put us into a state of uwe or flow or whatever you want to want to call it? Yeah. So one of the things we were starting to realize so the early Chinese had these insights. What's happening in cognitive science is in the last few decades there's been uh, you can think of it as a kind of rediscovery or a, a, a reuncovering of the power of spontaneity. So that our hot systems are actually very powerful. Most of what we're being, we do involves hot systems. And scientists and psychologists have therefore kind of stumbled on the importance of ritual. They said, well, if that's the case, how do you get people to change their behavior? Oh, it'd be good if you gave them scripts to practice or things to do. And, oh, okay, I guess that's called ritual. So <laughs> the psychologists have kind of been getting back to this point just through trial and error and realizing the way human beings work in terms of our cognition. So I think this is a good example of how early philosophical traditions can be a great resource for us in the contemporary world because actually the Chinese have been thinking about how you would use rituals and training and these sorts of things to change people and get them to act in a better way you know, for 2,500 years. So they, and a lot of clever people have thought about this very long and hard. So there's probably a lot to learn from the sorts of actual concrete techniques they came up with. Interesting. And one of the uh, critiques that uh, even Confucianism had 2,500 years ago or 22,000 yeah. years ago was that, you know, the goal is spontaneity, but you're putting, you're basically, you're, you're faking it, right? Like you don't, you're not actually, you don't actually have it. You're playing a role. And there's this uh, risk of being what I guess what Confucius called being the village poser. Yeah, that's my that's my translation of this term Xiangyuan, uh, which sometimes is done is village honest person or village worthy. So Confucius was very worried about this problem. So you're you, you know you're faking it until you make it. You're you're going through the motions of let's say being a filial child with the idea that that's going to help you really experience this feeling, the spontaneous feeling eventually of filiality. The danger is that you just learn the outside behavior and you don't actually make it way. You don't actually reach a state where you've really internalized it and made it spontaneous. And he was worried about that. And he was very worried about people pretending to be true Confucian gentlemen who actually hadn't uh, mastered it in this way. And this then leads to the first real philosophical critique of Confucianism, which is that of Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, where Lao Tzu says, uh, you should be worried about this, and in fact, your techniques are inevitably going to produce nothing but a bunch of village posers. Yeah, and another, we'll get to Lao Tzu in just a second, but the other, other problem with Confucianism is uh, it, there's sort of a bootstrap problem mm -hmm. um, in that you have to like want to get into that, that Confucius approach to, uh, you, have to you have to desire the Confucius approach 
to get going on it. But if you don't desire it, it's like, what do you do? Yeah. How do you teach? So he's, he's very frustrated because he thinks if you really love the way, then you won't have, you don't have to worry about the village poser problem. You'll love the way you'll learn to embody it in a new way fashion. But he's also frustrated because nobody loves the way. <laughs> so, you know, everyone loves at one point he, a uh, great line. He says, you know, I don't have to teach you to love food and sex. How come I have to teach you to love the way? You know, where can I find someone who, who really is passionate about it? And this is the tension that he has. So how do, you, how do you cause someone to genuinely, sincerely love something they don't already love? And that's the basic tension at the heart of the, the basic Confucian approach to Wu Wei. Yeah, and I think you see that tension play out even today in people's lives. Like people want to be fit, yep. but they don't love the, the way that you yep. have to get fit. Well, they, you know, they've got to learn to actually treasure it for the internal goods. You know, you have to yeah. find something. Like if you want to get fit, the best way to do it is to find something you actually like to do that, that as a side product would get you fit, right? Yeah. Play, tennis, play tennis or do something fun. Um, it's also a problem within learning. So, you know, you have kids, you know, my daughter's in elementary school and fortunately she is one of these People were born loving to read, so she just loves to read. We actually have to yell at her to stop reading sometimes <laughs> when we want her to do something. What a problem. Uh, yeah, it's a problem. But, you know, schools are really interested in getting kids to love learning, you know, and love reading. But if you don't, how do you get them to do it if they don't really want to do it? And, you know, their solution is, well, force them to read. Make them read for two hours, you know, a day. Um, and it's not clear that that's actually productive. That could, in fact, be counterproductive. So... Yeah, well, that brings us to our next guy, Lausa. Um, yeah, because his he he disagreed with Confucius, and um, you bring in this concept of ironic effects. It's a modern cognitive science or behavioral concept, yeah. uh, and Lausa seemed to have uh, insight into that two thousand yeah. years ago. Yeah, so there's a movement. The late Dan Wegner did a lot of work on that. This ironic effect. So you uh, ask people not to think of a white bear, and they think of a white bear. If you this one great experiment he did, you uh, have people putting, doing a golf putt, and if you tell them, you know, try to get it in the hole, but whatever you do, don't overshoot the hole. They overshoot the hole a lot more than if you don't <laughs> tell them that. Um, so there's you're you're basically priming people with the behavior you want them to not do, and that causes them to do it. So he called this the ironic ironic effects, and Lao Tzu seemed to be aware of this. So he he was worried that. In the same way, contemporary is a uh, situation you force a kid to read for two hours a day, and you think you're gonna you're doing it to get them to love reading, but in fact, it makes them hate reading because it's a chore. Lao Tzu thought if you force people to act out virtue by doing these filial piety rituals and doing these rituals to show that you respected your colleagues, it would actually make you a hypocrite, and in fact, make you at some level hate virtue. And that the, the only real way, so he really thought inevitably because of something like this ironic effect, he actually had a term for it, this term fan, which uh, it means return or kind of turning back. But he thinks anything that's pursued consciously turns into its opposite. So if you try to be witty, you're not going to be witty. If you try to be virtuous, you're not going to be virtuous. And so therefore, the only way to actually really be witty or virtuous is to not try, to stop trying. So his basic approach was, let's stop doing everything. <laughs> stop doing all the stuff the Confucians tell you to do. Go back to being natural again. 
And that's how you're going to get these things that you want. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So he was really advocating trying not to try. Yeah. So, and he, but of course, this is intention, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so nobody escaped. There's a genuine part of the point of the book is that this tension of trying not to try is a real paradox. And I actually explore from a cognitive scientific perspective why why it is a paradox. Essentially, you're using your conscious part of the brain to shut down your conscious part of the brain. It's a direct psychological paradox. And so there, you see all these thinkers struggling with the problem. Lao Tzu thinks the solution is to just stop trying and embrace weak. If you can really embrace weakness and not try to be strong, then in the end you'll somehow be strong. But the problem he has is this, what I call the instrumental problem. If you know that, then aren't you really at some level valuing strength? Yeah. So you're like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to uh, pretend to, I mean, I think a modern equivalent would be people who, you know, in a dating situation, they're like, okay, well, the way to get a date is to not try to get a date. And so I'm going to go out and be at a bar, but I'm not going to, I'm going to act like I'm not interested in meeting anyone. Um, and the problem is people like that really look like they're acting like they're not trying to meet anyone. They don't <laughs> actually seem sincerely uh, uh, uninterested. And so uh, that's the tension. How do you genuinely not want something? Yeah. it's What I, what I thought was funny, you know, I kind of chuckled as I was reading it was, how much parallel there is to what happened 2,000 years ago in China what, to what we see today. Um, you know, I think Laosa and his followers, they sort of uh, romanticized um, naturalness, right? They, they rejected technology. They'd go and farm with, you know, rudimentary tools. And, like, they're very, like, hippie-like. Yep. And yep. very... They're the first hippies. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's the same sort of, like, uh, tensions that you, you see in those different approaches. Uh, then you still see them now. Yeah. Well, the you know, these... 1960s hippies back to the land, they're like, let's go, you know, we're going to be natural. We're going to live in harmony with nature. And yet uh, it, it seems to be somehow in conflict with basic human desires. So all of those, most of the communes that got founded in the 60s very quickly broke down. And most of those people who were following the Grateful Dead around um, now drive beamers and are investment <laughs> bankers. Right? Um, so Lao Tzu, the, the tension he has is, from my perspective, seems to be if he's telling people they have to be natural, and yet he ha if he has to work so hard to tell us to be natural, maybe what he's telling us to do isn't natural. Yeah. Why, why do we have to work so hard to be in harmony with nature? It's, yeah. Like, it's that whole thing about you know technology isn't natural, but like we love to be love to use technology. We love technology. Yeah. So there so. must be something natural about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so there, there's Lao Tzu. The other one, uh, he seemed to take more of a I guess a, you know, a middle approach. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Mencius, is that how you pronounce it? Mencius, yeah. Mencius. Munza in Chinese. Munza, yeah. okay. Yeah. So he had this idea of, we have these these sprouts within mm -hmm. us, uh, and there's four of them. Can you describe these sprouts and what we're supposed to do with these to uh, cultivate Uwe? Yeah, so in some ways, you, you can see him responding to the Taoist critique of Confucianism being unnatural. 
So, you know, the Taoists are saying we, read, we need to be natural, we can't do these Confucian virtues. What Mencius says is actually doing the Confucian virtues is what's natural for us because we have those virtues inside of us. They're in our nature in this incipient form or kind of weak form and we need to develop them. And so he, his metaphor that he uses is a, is a sprout. So we have these four sprouts. We've got a sprout of benevolence or compassion. We've got a sprout of righteousness. We've got a, a sprout of ritual propriety, doing the ritually proper thing. And we have this sprout of wisdom. And he thinks these are these tendencies, if we, if we introspect, if we look inside, we can see that we have these in some kind of basic form already. And they want to grow into the full virtues. They want to, this beginning feeling of compassion really wants to turn into true benevolence. And in order to do that, we need Confucianism. We need the rituals, we need the classics, we need these, this type of training that we get from teachers. But that training shouldn't be seen as unnatural because it's actually helping this thing inside of us to grow. And so he's really trying to split the difference, if you want to look at it that way, between the Confucians and the Taoists. He still wants to be Confucian. He thinks he's a follower of Confucius. He, his picture of what society is going to look like looks a lot like what Confucius wanted. But he thinks it's really tapping into these natural tendencies inside of us. Okay, so yeah, he solves the bootstrap problem yeah, with uh, yep, Confucius. Yeah how, yeah, how do we you know, get someone to love something they don't love? Well, we do love it at yeah. some and I'm, as a teacher, going to help you see that. <laughs> yeah. So. You, you, yeah, you talk about some of the stories where you'd help these like really terrible kings realize you do have empathy. Look. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, so yeah, so there's a, the famous story is this really evil king. You know, Mencius says you can be a true benevolent king. And the king says, no, I really just like to party and hang out with my concubines and oppress people. That's what <laughs> I'm into. Um, and Mencius tells him the story about where he heard that he spared this ox that was being led to slaughter. And what he does is get him to introspect and realize that it's kind of like the puppy in the window uh, uh, situation. The, the, the king saw this animal that was in terror and, and about to be killed, and he felt compassion for it. And he gets him to realize that he did feel compassion and that if he could just kind of almost meditate on that feeling, focus on it, and learn to strengthen it, that would allow him to turn into a, a truly benevolent king. The other thing, too, you mentioned, so Minchus has this idea that you have these sprouts, you want to help them grow, but you don't want to try too hard. Um, yeah. Because you, either, you mentioned the parable of this farmer who saw the sprouts in his, his garden and he went and just pulled them out. Yeah. Thinking, trying to get them to grow faster. Trying to get them to grow faster. So yeah. it is Confucianism, but not really hardcore Confucianism. Well, it's not, he doesn't want you to force it. His target there is really these, uh, these utilitarians. So these people call them Moists. And the Moists think that they're, they're not, they're not into Uwe at all. They think what you can do is rationally figure out that behavior X results in the best consequences for everyone. And so force yourself to do behavior X. And in, in, in this view, it's impartial caring. So they want you to act impartially toward all people. It looks, their ideas in a lot of ways sound a lot like modern, some modern utilitarians like Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're similarly rationalistic in the sense that they think we just have to rationally grasp this thing and then put it into practice. And Mencius's critique of that is that it's actually you're forcing people to go so far against their nature that it's just going to result in disaster. 
So getting, forcing people to act completely impartially and not favor their own kids over other people's kids or favor their own parents over other parents is so unnatural that for, it's like pulling on sprouts to try to get them to grow in a direction you want them to grow. You're actually going to kill the plant and it's not going to work. So, Go ahead. Yeah, so you, you need guidance, but it needs to be gentle guidance, just in the way you can't make a plant grow faster than it's going to grow. And, and how does his approach confirm what many cognitive scientists are discovering to be true about how human motivation or human cognition works? Yeah, so I, I talk about Mencius a lot when I'm talking to philosophers, because I think his model actually has a lot going for it from a contemporary empirical standpoint. So first of all, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear that moral cognition and especially moral behavior is driven by emotions. And so Mencius was right about this, that we have these four feelings, these sprouts that really are driving our behavior. And he also seems to be right that they're distinct. So uh, philosophers often talk about morality as if it's a unitary thing, Western philosophers. In Mencius's model, what we could call morality is just a blanket term for these distinct moral emotions. So empathy, and uh, justice, you know, feeling of anger when people are being unjust. And the important thing to see is that these are really different types of feelings. They're inspired by different situations. They have different behavioral uh, outcomes. They have different phenomenological and the, and the inside feeling to them. And so Mencius seems to be right about that, that it, the way to look at it is uh, morality is modular. It's emotional, it's based on our emotions, and it's modular. So it's, we have these distinct moral emotions that, that uh, are, are very different from one another. Although they all, we call them all moral because they have to do with helping people get along with other people in society. So he seems to be, have been very present in the sense that he was, uh, he thought that morality was about cultivating embodied emotions. And, and that's a message that I think modern ethicists really need to get. Wait, so look, we talked about three. There's one last one. You're going to tell me with his name because... Yeah, uh, yeah Zhuangzi. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I was pronouncing it different in my head. Yeah. Um, so what was his approach to Uwe? Was it, and it seemed like it was very similar to Lao Tzu's uh, approach to... Yeah, uh, there are similarities, and that's why they... So Zhuangzi is typically paired together with Lao Tzu and called the, the, they're called the Taoist school. But that's a later, that term's a later invention. So the Confucians actually saw themselves as Confucians, as followers of Confucius, as members of a school. They were, um, you know, fighting about who really got Confucius right, but they all thought they were, they were following Confucius. The, the Taoists weren't following each other. So as you'd expect, maybe, of the Taoists, they, they were a little bit less organized. Um, so Zhuangzi, he's classed with Lao Tzu because he's similarly worried about trying too hard. So he does think the solution, as Lao Tzu does, is to try less, you know, to, to go toward more than not trying part of the, the strategy. And, but his, his technique is a bit different. He doesn't have any kind of concrete. So Lao Tzu has got a very concrete vision of what a natural life should look like, and he wants you to pursue that vision. Drop out of society, go live in a small village, use primitive technology, never leave your village. That's going to make you natural. Zhuangzi thinks actually having a concrete vision about what's natural is part of the problem. So I think he'd be as critical of Lao Tzu as he, and he is actually as critical of these primitivists um, who are very much like Lao Tzu as he is of the Confucians. So he thinks that the similar problem they all have 
is they're sure they know what the right way to live is. And he thinks, in fact, we don't know what the right way to live is, that the only way we can live properly is to surrender, to make our mind empty, to make it tenuous, this is the shoe, this term he uses. And if we can do that, we've got a kind of onboard guidance system sent from heaven. So he believes that the, the kind of uh, sacred force in the world, heaven, has implanted this thing called the spirit inside of people. And that normally we don't listen to our spirit because we're using our mind too much. We're full of thoughts about we know what the right thing to do is, or we have these maxims we're trying to follow, or we're trying to maximize utility. He thinks if we could stop trying and, and make our mind empty, this spirit would be able to take over and guide us in the proper direction. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what I thought was really great at the end of the book, you wrapped this up and you made this connection to, uh, Uwe or flow, you know, we're not, we'll call it Uwe, um, yeah. that I never really thought about before why we value it so much. And it comes down to human trust. Mm-hmm. What is it about spontaneity that makes us more trustworthy? Yeah. So th- what, I'm, one of the things I'm trying to explain in that, that last section is, why uwe and duh should fit together. So I said in the beginning, if you're in a state of uwe, you get this power, this charismatic virtue or charismatic power. The, the Chinese explanation is religious. It's a theological explanation. So they think the reason you have duh when you're in uwe is heaven gives it to you as a reward. When you're in uwe, you're following heaven's, heaven's dao, heaven's way. And so it gives you this power as a reward. But what I'm wondering in the book is from a modern perspective, we don't share this metaphysics. We don't believe there's a heaven that's giving us this power necessarily. So what's a naturalistic explanation of why these two things should fit together? And I think the answer has to do with problems of cooperation we have in large-scale societies and civilization. So when people are living in civilization, they're having to cooperate all the time with people who aren't related to them and who they don't really know well personally necessarily. And so there's, there's some really basic uh, cooperation dilemmas that arise in situations like that. And one of the things you need to be sure of to get coordination off the ground is that people, these people you're interacting with are committed to the same values as you, that you can trust them. So uh, if we're in a, an army unit together and we're going to be sent over this ridge to attack the enemy, I've got to believe that you're as gung-ho as I am, and that when you know the sergeant says charge, you're going to run just as fast as me. <laughs> you're not going to be like you know, hanging a few paces back letting me take the first bullet. And so how can I be sure of that? I've got to trust you. And one of the things I do is review a bunch of literature coming out of social psychology and cognitive science suggesting that we... We trust people who are spontaneous. We trust people who are not kicking off signs of conscious effort. And that seems to be because actually in order to lie or cheat or deceive people, you have to exercise cognitive control. And so there's something about somebody who is not trying. Who's in, there's something about someone who's in Uwe that inspires trust in us because people who are not trying are usually honest. They're, whatever it is they're doing or saying is probably true because they're not kicking off signs of lying or, or trying to fake it. 
Really interesting stuff. Um, so this has all been great. We, we've talked, we've covered a lot of different approaches to Uwe. I'm curious, before we, we, we end the conversation, is there one thing that a, a, a person who's listening to this podcast can start doing today to maybe cultivate a bit more Uwe into their life? Or do, yeah. you, do you have a favorite approach? Yeah, you know, this is a tricky thing. And the book was marketed as a self-help book. And a lot of people got pissed off because there's not they thought there'd be like a little pull-out section. Yeah, where was the, the, the bullet points at the end of the chapter? <laughs> the bullet points. No bullet points. And so there's no one solution because it, it's genuinely a paradox. And if, a, if there were a solution, it wouldn't be a paradox. But what I think is helpful, the kind of takeaway from the book, is first of all, just having a word for way is helpful. Like I find that people who know about the stuff, who I've talked to about it, they start using it in their daily lives because we just don't have a good word for it. And one of the reasons we don't have a good word for it is because we don't tend to recognize the power of spontaneity in our everyday lives. And so I think we've really been trained that to, to reach our goals or to get what we want. And we just have to try harder. So we're not where we want to be. We'll try harder, work harder, uh, you know, put, your, put effort into it. And we, what we don't see is that when it comes to a lot of goals, so um, happiness, creativity, attractiveness, that's completely counterproductive, that consciously pursuing it means we're not going to get it. And so knowing about way, kind of recovering a sense of the power of spontaneity, I think helps us to see, to recognize in our lives situations where we're trying and we shouldn't be. And actually what we need to do is stop. <laughs> and how we're going to do that may vary. It may be that you know, we need to do a kind of Zhuangzian meditation where we just clear our mind before an important meeting, let's say. We know that when we go into the meeting, we have a tendency to talk too much and try too hard to impress the boss. And we've got to stop doing that. How do we actually do that? Maybe you know, it involves meditating, you know, doing a little mind, mindfulness exercise before you go in. Maybe it involves actually going for an intense run beforehand and just tying, tiring your body out so much that you're, you're not able to be too pushy. The, the thing is, the, the, what, what the barriers to Uwe are for any given individual really depends on the individual. And I think that's why there are these, these different strategies, because which one is the right one? is going to vary from individual to individual, and it's also going to vary from situation to situation. But that's where I think having this kind of grab bag of strategies. The, the early Chinese really, I think, explored all of the logical possibilities you could have. And so you've got them there. You've got these different strategies. And which one's going to be the, the best one is really something that's going to, you're going to have to evaluate in your own life and, and, and based on what the challenges to spontaneity are that you're facing. All right. Well, Edward Slingerland, this has been a fa fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. My guest today was Edward Slingerland. He's the author of the book, Trying Not to Try, and you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast, or just tell us, tell your friends about us. I'd really appreciate it if you get the word about the podcast. Really appreciate your support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.